You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. It is awesome to be with you guys today. Seriously, God is so faithful and so good. We uh, finished out our church history class this morning, a discipleship class, and talking about the modern church and talking about God's faithfulness globally and the, the movement of God's church that has been going on for thousands of years and doesn't exist just within white suburbia in America, by the way. It exists in every corner of the planet, in every expression of culture and humanity. God is moving and calling his elect unto him, which is a beautiful thing we're celebrating. Um, this week, I got to go to camp with our students um, so if I fall asleep mid-sermon, I need you to just, like, be cool about it. Just wake me up, and don't, like, make a big deal out of it when I wake back up. And I'll just go back to preaching, and we can all pretend it didn't happen. So <laughs> if you're listening to this on the podcast, and there's, like, 30 seconds of silence, you know why. <laughs> Future church. Um, anyway, uh, I, I'm, I'm stoked to do this. We're, we're going to be in Malachi again today. I know, by the way... Um, our, our elder board is not evil. They didn't make me preach the week after camp. I volunteered uh, because um, camp is one of my favorite places to be. I, I've, I've gotten to go with students to summer camp every year for like the last decade and getting to just spend that week uh, surrounded by young people whom God loves and he's calling, surrounded by the movement of the spirit, away from distractions, honestly is the best place on earth to write a sermon. So uh, the kids are really gracious. They let me hide for a couple days. Uh, during all the free time and and write this, and so I'm stoked to be here. So we're in Malachi, uh, continuing our summer series in the Minor Prophets. If you guys want to turn there, we're in Malachi, uh, finishing out chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 today. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. I'd love for you to grab one of those. We really believe in the importance of access to God's Word. We believe in the power of God's revelation through His Word. So if you are here today and you don't own a Bible... Snag one of those, take it home, uh, talk to one of the elders. We will buy you a nicer one than that. Uh, do something. Get, get, a, get a Bible in your hands. It's, it's worth having. Um, so we're in Malachi. If you guys are there already, I'm going to start reading for us in verse 17 of chapter 2. And we're going to continue uh, through verse 5 of chapter 3. It says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Dang. (laughs) Going hard right out the gate here. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the word of the Lord. Dang. I feel like, I don't know, that's just so brutal. We can just be done and I'll go home and and cry for a little while. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. Uh, I've said this several times, but when it comes to studying the prophets, we, we have to do a little bit of extra exegetical work when we dig in. We have to do a little bit extra work to make sure we really understand the history and the text here and what's being said so that we can actually hear what God has for us. Beloved, I think, I think God has something really beautiful for us today. I think he wants to draw us to something, honestly, hopefully a little painful and a little convicting, but, but really, really life-giving and freeing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through this text, and I'm going to point out um, kind of a couple of the big historical contextual pieces, kind of get us in this story, and I think that'll make it pretty evident what, what God is saying when we get, kind of get clear eyes for this text, which will lead us to some of Jesus' teachings and then we'll end out our time in 1 Thessalonians with communion. Sound good? Cool. So let's put ourselves back in the context of this book, right? So I know we do this each week, but I, I, I want to I get this in our heads as, as we're hearing this book proclaimed, as you're studying it on your own. I want you to be able to just start immediately from this place of where and what is happening as you study this text, because Malachi is too good for you to miss out on it. So remember, this is post exile Israel, right? So this is Old Testament. This is before Jesus, before the cross, but after the Israel has broken their covenant with God. So in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God makes a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. He frees them from slavery, right? You know, let my people go. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He meets with his people for the first time since sin entered the world. God begins dwelling with his people again, and he makes this agreement of this is what our relationship can look like because I'm holy and you're sinful. These things have to happen for us to be connected, but I love you, so I want us to be connected, right? That's the story of the Exodus. And they make this covenant. And in the covenant, it's because of God's holiness, there's this idea of you must be set apart and holy. If you're going to be with me, if you're going to be my people, you have to be set apart and holy because I can't dwell with unholiness. It would kill you. If I said, hey, come hang out, and you were just drenched in sin, it would burn you up, which we see, by the way. You see that happen in Exodus. Aaron's sons like go and they profane before the Lord. They like break and, and like invade his holiness with sin and they literally just burst into flame. And so God says, I don't want that for you. That's not like nobody's, nobody's here about spontaneous combustion. So you need to be holy as I'm holy so we can be together. 
And so he sets forth this covenant of blessings and curses. If you, if you walk in holiness, there will be blessings so that we can be together. If you walk in sin, there will be curse and our relationship will be broken. Well, the rest of the story of the Old Testament, book after book after book, is Israel over and over and over and over and over breaking the covenant they made with God. They all stood together as a people and said, we will do this at Mount Sinai. And God descends from the mountain and dwells amongst the people. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, they profane that covenant and live in sin and live in their flesh and live for themselves and basically just pour their profanity, their sinfulness, their unholiness upon God, who in his love and his mercy keeps warning them. Guys, you can't do this. If you continue in this, there will be like there, there will be consequences. Like this can't work. Our relationship can't be like this. And eventually, after generations of God sending his prophets to warn his people to repent, eventually the curse comes upon Israel in totality, and Israel is destroyed. And God's set apart people, his covenant people, are gone. Israel is wiped off the face of the planet. Jerusalem is raised to the ground. We just read, right, at our call to worship out of Lamentations when, when the prophet Jeremiah is walking around the ruins of Israel, seeing firsthand the effects of broken covenant and broken relationship. What happens when you try and put unholiness onto holiness? It blows up. And now, 70 years later, in his mercy, God is working to restore Israel. He's, he's working to bring his people back and restore the covenant unto them because they're walking, they're, they're attempting to walk in repentance. And so God begins slowly, piece by piece, to restore the covenant and restore the blessing and restore his people. And we know that he's setting the stage for Jesus. That in, in pouring out his wrath on Israel, in, in ending that, right? That God is setting the stage for the new covenant. The covenant where the covenant of grace, the covenant of, of Christ's blood, where we know that, that we don't have to perfectly follow an offering system because Christ made the last offering, right? The new covenant is significantly superior, is great. But in this space where we're at, we're, we're not there yet. God's people have been brought back to Israel, but everything is different. Nothing feels the same. They, they remember the old temple, and they remember the old days, and they remember kings like Solomon and David who like led their people in, in worship and in seeking after God. And where they are now does not feel like God's merciful, loving restoration. It feels like the Persians, their pagan overlords, have let them move back to Jerusalem. But everything's still pretty terrible, right? And so as we've seen in Malachi, the whole context of Malachi is that God sends this prophet to his people living in their discouragement in the rebuilt Jerusalem to encourage them, to call, call them on their sin and call them to righteousness. The, the prophet Malachi says, listen, 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 listen. Your circumstances have broken your theology. 
Your suffering and the pain you've seen around you have broken your understanding of God, but you need to see God is in this. He is restoring you. He's making a way for you. He's doing something new. Don't miss this. Because what happened was God's people had come back and they were in Jerusalem, but they see how much worse everything is than it used to be. And it's created in them this cynicism and this unbelief where their response to God is half-hearted, like, like we'll, do the, we'll go through the motions, but not even like really go through the motions. One of the, 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 one of the biggest themes of Malachi, Malachi starts with God saying, I have always loved you. But then he goes on to say, but you detest me. You despise me. See, God is speaking to Israel and Malachi as, as someone who loves his people, but he sees how poisoned their hearts are. Guys, I'm blessing you. I'm seeking to restore you. I'm doing something new, but you can't see it and you hate me for it. And so he goes and he critiques their worship. And, and in chapters 1 and chapters 2, we see how the actions of the Israelites show the inward pieces of their hearts. You've been given this opportunity to worship the God who loves you, but you are profaning that, right? And so he calls out Israel, and he calls out the priests and says, you are missing it. You are missing my love for you, my mercy for you, and you are, you are wrecking this thing. You hate me, but I love you, right? And then we pick up in verse 17, and things, as if they weren't already real, things get pretty real. And now the God who says, I have always loved you, says, you are wearing me out. Whew. I'm just going to tell you guys, like if a prophet of God ever comes to speak to you, this is not the phrase you want to hear. He says, you are wearying me. And as has been the structure of Malachi, the people respond or were given the response of, how have we wearied you? And God gives a strange answer with your words. That's interesting, right? Because we've talked about actions up to this point. We've talked about their worship, what they're doing. But now God says, your speech shows your heart just as much as your actions, and it is wearing me out. It almost reflects words we'll hear just a few hundred years later when someone says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And in speaking of God's judgment, it is said, you will give an account for every careless word you speak. And here the prophet says, your words weary me. Beloved, we need to think about that. What we proclaim with our mouth what we speak when we come together and we sing songs. We are proclaiming truth. And God here says, your words are wearing me out. And look at the words he points to. This is interesting, these two phrases, and it's interesting that he puts them together. He says, how, how have we wearied you? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? It's crazy how little human beings change in 2,000 years. How, how many of us today, 
walk with this weird speaking out of both sides of our mouth in, in, in reference to God. What essentially is being said here is he sa- God says, you're, you're wearing me out. You, you say that I look at, at sinners and I'm cool with that. And then, and then, and then I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with these people living in sin. And then on the other side of your mouth, you say, where's God's justice? Why isn't he punishing this sin? What do you want from me? Man, does that, does that strike home a little bit with anyone? How, how many of us today, in, in, by the way, a godly attempt to, to understand and to proclaim God's gracious love for, for fallen and dead sinners, we, we take and distort God's character in attempting to help someone who is wrapped up their identity and their person in some, some aspect, some expression, whether it's habituated or addictive or out of a willful choice, we, we take someone who has wrapped up their identity in sin and we say, it's cool. And God loves you. It's cool. Like God is, listen, you're good. How, how many of us can fall into that trap? And then out of the other side of our mouth, be like, man, look at all this injustice and sin in the world. Where's God's action on that? Well, which do you want? Do you want God's grace for mercy for sinners? Or do you want God's wrath for injustice? Because they go together. And God says, I can't, like, this is, this is not tenable, what you're doing. We can't, we can't keep this up. Now, by the way, go back to, this must be read in the context of the whole book. God started this by saying, I, I'm crazy about you. I love you in ways you don't even know. I've all, I, I have loved you always. I'm, I am faithful to my covenant. I love you. But this thing you're doing, you're saying, that's crazy and we can't keep doing that. You guys, you guys kind of feel that? And then God gives this response. Going into chapter 3, he responds to both of these accusations. He responds to this accusation that he is okay with sin, that he's pleased with unholiness, and he responds to this accusation that he is slow in his justice. Right? He responds to both of them. First, by talking about his coming plan. He, he bigs in, like, verse 1 of chapter 3 is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's, it's the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Behold, I am sending a messenger who will make straight the paths. John the Baptist, the same dude that was like, you brood of vipers, careless words, right? Like, he, he prophesies, like, this isn't how, like, this isn't just what it is. Like, being here in, like, Jerusalem 2.0, that's kind of lame. Like, this is not just the plan moving forward. I'm doing something new. Behold, I am sending my messenger. And by the way, when he gets here, it's going to be crazy. When he stands in the temple, he's going to purify what is broken. He's going to engage sin head on. In reference to the ministry of Jesus. You guys know we spent like a year and a half going through the Gospel of Mark, right? In the last several chapters of Mark, Jesus spends his time in the temple casting his judgment upon the failures of the temple worship. 
This prophecy that we, we just read is, is, is fulfilled in Christ and will be fulfilled fully in Christ's return. But Malachi is warning here, saying, listen, it's, it's, it's not like God looks at how bad things are in Jerusalem right now and he's just like, it's cool. No, he's, he's sending a Messiah who will, who will purify what is, what is broken. Like He wants you to be in relationship with him and un- unholiness can't be with holiness. We know that. And so he's sending a, a purifier. But he tells us, but you need to know that's not going to be a pleasant experience. That's intense. Who can endure it? Who can stand when the messenger comes? Well, the the implied answer there is no one. Because no one is righteous, not even one. When God God comes to, to cast judgment on, on his people's promise to fulfill their covenant. The judgment is going to be, you didn't do it. You failed. And that's intense. Because we can't do it. We can't uphold our end of the bargain. We can't live in righteousness. We can't be holy as God is holy. That's intense. He says, you say I'm just cool with sin? Do the opposite. I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy sin. I don't want that stuff anywhere. I'm going to destroy it. And he gives us these two images, right? Of the silversmith purifying silver and the fuller with his soap. Now, I don't know how much time you guys spend researching ancient Near Eastern metal purification techniques. But um, it's, it's a hobby of mine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, let, let me explain just these images for you because they would have struck home with this audience in a way they don't for us. So a fuller was someone, was essentially a, an ancient Near Eastern dry cleaner. He would clean people's robes. And it was a very specific technique. They would make these uh, pretty pure white robes. When you, when you got your new robe, it was like, dang, that's brand new. Look how crisp and white and fresh and bright it is. And when you only own one set of clothes your whole life, uh, it doesn't say pure and crisp and white very long. Uh, they got pretty nasty. And when they got nasty enough, you would give your robe to the fuller, who would take it and set it in a stone mill, like a mill they would use to grind up wheat. And they would pour fuller's soap over it, which is kind of similar to modern like borax. It's, it's an abrasive, powdery soap. And they'd pour it on there, and they'd put a bunch of water in this grinding wheel, and then they would roll the big stone wheel over the clothes, and they'd get up there, and they'd get their feet on it, and just kind of like grind the cloth into the stone. And the friction would clean it. And you'd get it back, and it would be bright white again for like two seconds till you put it on your body, because you hadn't actually bathed while your clothes were getting clean. But anyway, <laughs> you get the image. The fuller takes the robe, the dirty, nasty, smelly robe, grinds it against stone and crushes it and fills it up with sand and all that junk and it comes out bright white and clean. Now silver is interesting because um, it wasn't the most valuable metal in this day, but it was the hardest to purify with early techniques. Um, And I don't know this stuff. If my sister-in-law is in here, she's probably judging what I'm about to say. But the silver deposits they could mine in this day were mixed with lead and tin. 
And the lead was easy enough to get out because its melting point was really lower, a lot lower than silver, but the tin was hard to get out. And so what they would do is they would get the thing molten, and then they would take bone dust or charcoal dust and throw it on top of the molten silver and then blow it, just blow the dust off. And the burst of oxygen would cause some kind of binding thing, and the tin would bind to the bone dust, and it would blow off the silver. And I had to do that over the course of several like meltings and reapplications to get the silver pure. And it was a really hard process. It took way longer than purifying gold or, or other like valuable metals in that day. But they did it because silver was pure silver. It was the only thing they could really consistently make mirrors out of. And those are actually pretty useful. And so they would do the work of purifying silver to make mirrors so they, could, so they could see themselves. And that was the standard the purifier would use. He would get it all heated up, and he would put the bone dust on there, and then he would blow it off. And when you blow it off, it would hissle and crack and pop and fizz. And then when he got it cleaned off, he would look down in it and see how well he could see himself. And depending on how distorted the silver was of his image, he would start the process over again. And it was really hard. If you put too much charcoal in, you ruined it, and it turned cloudy. If you put not enough in, the tin wouldn't get out, and it would stay swirly and cloudy. But uh, if you wanted a mirror, that was the process you were doing. So God compares his coming messenger, his coming Messiah, to the purifier and the fuller. When we, it starts to make sense why he's saying, this won't be a pleasant experience, Right? Like, ask the silver its thoughts on being purified. Ask the robe its thoughts on being cleaned by soap. It wasn't a pleasant experience. It involved heat and friction and working. It involved submission to the cleaner or to the purifier, right? Pieces of it were removed. Heavy weights were placed upon it. The image of the fuller with his foot on the robe, like rubbing it back and forth on the stone to get stains out of the robe. This is the image that God connects to his coming Messiah. He says, you, you say that I'm just cool with sin, that the people who, who live in unholiness, that not only am I cool with that, like I, they're, bless them, they're awesome. Let me tell you how that's actually going to go down. I'm going to send my messenger to the temple and he's going to purify it. Like a fuller, like a silversmith. He's going to remove all the impurities and he's going to do what it takes to get them out of it. To get, to get the sin, the unholiness out of my people. He's going to do the work required. He's going to keep heating up that silver and keep mixing the ashes with it until he sees his face in it. He's going to keep grinding that cloth until he, it's actually bright white and pure again. He's going to be relentless until they're pure. Dang. We need to think about that for a minute. See, God cares about unholiness. God cares about sin. And what we hear in the text here is that God is not just okay with allowing difficulty and pain and circumstances and specific messengers to peace. He's not, he's not just okay with that. He is purposeful in that. See, God does not waste suffering. 
He didn't design this world to suffer. It wasn't in the original plan. But here it is. The world is unholy and unrighteous. It's cursed and sinful and broken. And God, in his mercy and his sovereignty, uses even what we have broken to prepare us for what he's built us for. Beloved, that's a hard, that's a hard lesson to think about. It is hard and painful to submit to God's sovereignty in your suffering. But you need to hear this. God loves you too much to waste your time here on earth. Like the earth is, is cursed, it's sinful, it's broken, it's what it is. Until he takes you home, you're here. And he loves you too much just to waste this time. He uses it to prepare us. And listen, I want you to hear this. Because this, like, when we, when we hear this phrase, right, like, God, God is not mocked. He hates sin. There, a day will come when he will destroy it. It's, it's easy for us, especially those of us with more traumatic, more painful, more curse-oriented stories, maybe where we have struggled with habituated or addiction-centered sins, or maybe where other people's sinful choices has caused injustice or abuse on us. It is, it is really hard to hear that. You go, really? God's sovereign in that? God's using that? Really? Yes. Yeah. I know that's painful. I know that's a, I know, I know that's a jagged pill to swallow. But it's true. God loves you too much to waste even the darkest parts of your story. I promise you. He's in that. He's in that with you. He's in that for you. Those things will be purified. Those things will, those things will, if you allow them to, will build holiness in you. They can draw you to deeper dependence on Christ. And please don't hear me dismissing your story. I get it. I get that those things can feel like they define your whole life. I'm not attempting to be dismissive in any way. I'm telling you that God is bigger than those things. He's bigger than the deepest pain in your life. He's bigger than the strongest addiction in your life. He's deeper than the most unjust abuse in your life. He is. And he's sovereign. And he's able. He's able to redeem even that. Man. What a, what a God we serve. Who doesn't just capitulate to sin and say, man, I love you guys. It's cool. Don't worry about it. No. He hates sin. But he loves you. He desires for you to be as he made you. Pure. Healed. Whole. Joyful. Complete in him. That's his desire for you. So no. He's not going to look at something in you that is a direct result of the curse, that is a direct like breaking of his design for you and be like, it's cool, I love you, don't worry about it. No! He's going to refine that out of you. Because he wants something better for you. 
Because the life God has for you, the design he has for you, is what you're actually made for. It's what your heart is actually longing for. And you may have been hearing a lie that, that your sin and your brokenness and your story and your, that that is somehow a deep part of who you are. And you may have been hearing that for the last 25, 30, 40, 50 years, but I promise you the voice of God is not telling you that. He's telling you that he has perfection for you and life and joy and freedom for you. It's for freedom that he has set us free. And look what he says next. He moves from the first accusation of, well, you just, you just don't, you, you like, you're just cool with sin, to the second accusation of, where's your justice? And he goes, where's my justice? Do you not realize how patient and merciful I am? My justice is coming and will come swiftly. And I will stand against every sin and every piece of unholiness. Look at what he says here. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, God will stand in judgment over every injustice, every sin. As will be said later, every careless word. God is holy. And there will be no unholiness in his presence. There will be no brokenness, no curse, no sin in heaven. Everything that is not his design will be removed. From his beloved, it will be purified out so that all that is left is purity and holiness. And from those who reject him, it will be destroyed. With them, in judgment. Sin, the curse, is going away one way or the other. If you're his, he will graciously purify it out of you. And it will be painful. If you're not his, you have not received the gift of salvation that Christ freely offered on the cross, then you will stand accountable for your unholiness. And guys, it is a dreadful thing, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fall at his feet, that's a blessing. To come to him in dependence and repentance is life. But God is just, and Christ will return, and he will judge the living and the dead, and sin will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. It will be gone. And I know for some of you who your identity feels so wrapped up in some experience of sin, whether it's something done to you or something you've done, that can feel like God is saying, I hate you. That's not the case. Your God loves you. He loves you more than you can possibly know. He loves you with a deep and abiding passion that is calling you to life and repentance. But you need to know, he loves too much to allow the curse to continue. He loves too much to allow sin a place in his creation. He will destroy it. 
You will. Don't sit on the wrong side of that. Your God loves you and He is calling you to life and repentance. A lot of Israel missed that. And they sat in this weird double double mouthedness, right? This weird hypocrisy of going, God's cool with this sin that's ours. Like it's cool with He's cool with that. But what the heck, God? Why are you allowing that sin? Right? They were missing who God was. Their, their circumstances, hear this, their circumstances broke their theology. They thought God was not how he said he was. And their broken theology broke their worship because as soon as they forgot who God actually was, all of a sudden the sacrifice required to worship him seemed burdensome and wearisome. And so they just stopped actually engaging him as holy and righteous. And the minute they stopped actually worshiping him, their relationship was broken. Your circumstances, if you allow them, can wreck your faith. Paul will say later to a young pastor he was discipling that the ways of this world led two young Christians to shipwreck their faith. You can allow your circumstances to destroy you, to break your theology, and break your worship, and break your relationship. But you don't have to. See, God invites you into something else. God invites you to see his sovereign love in the midst of your circumstances. He invites you to see the larger design that he has for you. He invites you into hope. Hope. Hope that things are not as they should be. And they will not continue this way forever. You see, ultimately, the gospel is a promise from God. I promise you. Fix this. I promise you. I promise you this is not how it has to be and it's not how it's going to be. I sent my son. He loved you perfectly. His sacrifice paid for your sins. I promise you. You can trust that. I promise you he'll return and he'll return in judgment and fix everything and set you up for eternity. I promise. So you can see your circumstances and you can let them conquer you and you can make a shipwreck. You can take a step back and you can see God's sovereignty. You can see his love and you can see his promises for you. And you can see his his faithfulness, his character to keep his promises. And you can trust them. You can walk through the deep, deep injustices and pains of this world. And you can allow... God, to use that to purify you, to make you more like him. As James said, you can let steadfastness have its full effect, right? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we can experience the waves this world rolls over us. Not that they don't hurt, not that you're like a Vulcan, not that, not that you don't experience pain, but you can experience the pain with hope. 
You, you can allow God to use hardship in your life to make you as he designed you. To, to draw you into deeper intimacy with him. There's a, I've said this before, but there's a book by C.S. Lewis called Paralandria. Uh, it's, it's this science fiction book where uh, it's really weird for me to explain it, but a guy sends a, God sends a guy to Venus. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the book, they're living on these floating islands that, that drift across uh, this massive ocean that's like most of the planet. And, and these islands are made up of vegetation that's only like 10 feet thick. And so when a wave comes over, the whole island like, goes like this. And the main character keeps falling over every time a wave hits the island. And he meets uh, the queen, who, who represents Eve on this planet, and he notices that she never falls down. And so they, they're having this conversation about walking and how to embrace the waves. And she just goes, I mean, God sends you each of the waves. Like, why would you tense up and try to avoid them? That's what he's doing. Is he sees it coming, he's like, oh, shoot. And he tries to, like, brace himself, and then it just knocks him over. And she's like, you just need to relax. Like, God sent the wave. <laughs> he knows you're standing here. Just accept it. Let, it. let it hit you. And then he learns how to, like, walk on the island slowly by embracing each wave as God sends it to the island. Guys, this, this is the life we live. We live in a cursed and broken world, and awful things happen. By the way, I'm not trying to be political here, but I do believe in the power of Scripture. And we really should read that list of sins that God will come to judge. God apparently cares a ton about wage equality for poor people. And apparently he cares a ton about sojourners, which, by the way, in that context can easily just mean refugees. Take that for what you will. God cares about that stuff cares about sin. He cares about injustice. He cares about you. This world is what it is. Those awful things will happen. Yeah, those waves are going to hit you. But we can go a couple different ways. We can fight it. We can, we can become bitter. We can get angry. We can allow it to break our theology, to shipwreck our faith. Or we can loosen up. We can accept the wave that God is sending to us. And I, guys, I don't say that lightly. Because I know even as I say that, there's some of you in the room who are like, really? That's what God has for me? Because that seems awful. Yeah. That's what God has for you. And I know, like, that's, that's not dismissive. Because the, like, I don't care how horrible the injustice you've experienced in this world is. Christ is preparing you for eternity with him, purified and righteous. And I'm not downplaying the pain of your experience because I get, I've talked to a lot of you, I get, I get how painful some of the stuff you guys have walked through is. But 85 trillion years from now, when you are still walking in perfected joy with Christ, day after day after day, stretching into all of eternity, your injustice will appear to you as a light and momentary affliction. And I invite you to step back and see that perspective. See the God who loves you and has called you, who's made a way for you into eternity. And my last thing, I'm going to read us a passage 
from 1 Thessalonians about Christ's return. Because really, guys, the promise of the end times is the promise of hope. The promise of this, this prophet is the promise of hope. It's saying that sin does not win. That, that, that suffering is not the end all. That God actually wins. That the gospel is actually more powerful. That God actually reigns supreme. And when Christ returns, all suffering will be destroyed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this passage. And then I'm just going to open up some time for us to pray. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says to the Thessalonians, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Beloved, as you engage the waves of this world, they will knock you down. They will beat you up. But we have a hope in Christ. And we get to come together as family, as brothers and sisters, encouraging each other in the hope of our coming Lord, reminding each other that our suffering in this world is a light and momentary affliction in light of eternity with God. We get to come to each other in weakness and say, I don't, I just don't, I don't see it. I don't have the hope of Jesus today. My, my, my circumstances are too big. They're knocking me over. We get to come together and point each other to the God of mercy and grace. The God who is sovereign over suffering. The God who is calling us to eternity with him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.